Hi, welcome to the Penis Project podcast. This is the place to come to find out everything you've always wanted to know about men's health but were too embarrassed to ask. Join physiotherapist Dr. Joe Milios and sexologist nurse practitioner Melissa Hadley Barrett as they talk to real men and the experts about men's private parts. Have a burning question you really want to know the answer to? Please subscribe to our website at thepenisproject.org and ask us. Well, the greater the strength, the more time I've got for you. There's too much talking, texting, tweeting, posting. Too much noise altogether. In silence is strength and peace and space. Imagine silence forever. The Penis Project podcast is proudly supported and sponsored by PROST, Exercise for Prostate Cancer Incorporated, a not-for-profit charity set up in 2012 by myself. If you want to know any more information about Prost, including our online service now available, please just go to prost.com.au. Prost means cheers to your health. So, Prost. Where I want to call my home. Hello, welcome to the Penis Project podcast. Today we are talking to Pike, who is 31 years of age and he was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at the age of 10. So as you can imagine, that brought about some penis problems that we're going to talk to about him today. So Dr. Joe is going to ask the first question. So here we go. Okay, Pike, type 1 diabetes. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And you were diagnosed with that at 10 years of age. So perhaps we just have a little bit of background about what diabetes type 1 is to start with. Sure. Sitting beside a nurse here and here I am describing (laughs) what diabetes is, but sure, I'll give it a crack. Go for it. Um, So as I understand it, it's an autoimmune condition. So uh, my body's immune system at some stage decided that my insulin producing cells in my pancreas were no good and needed to go. uh, And so it started killing them off. Um, And then... Um, so I got symptoms like always being thirsty and kind of peeing a lot, which was the result of my body trying to flush the, uh, sugar out of my blood through, uh, urine. Um, and so that was kind of the symptoms that triggered my mum to go, "Mm, something not right here, uh, to the GP. Then it was pee on a stick and, uh, into princess Margaret that night. Um, once we got the news. So did you get very unwell? Do you remember that? Didn't get unwell. No. So I think it was picked up early enough that I... I got into uh, the ER and uh, everyone was saying, oh, he's wasted away. And my mum was like, no, he's always been that way. Did <laughs> so, but, yeah. A skinny mini. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. And moving on, we're going 21 years now. It's a bit of a broad question, but how has it affected your life being, I guess, living with that through your teenage years and then into young adulthood? How How's it all been for you? Teenage years, I think, was a bit harder um, just things like uh, impromptu sleepovers or outings or whatever it is would sometimes be um, have a have a uh, pin put in them because I was either due for a set change of my insulin pump that night or um, high low blood sugars etc. Just those kinds of complications. But I mean, day to day, like you know, I could go multiple hours in a day without 
really even having to think about my diabetes. So I do remember times when I was super frustrated in short bursts, but then after, you know, I'd just be able to forget about it for several hours after that. So what about things like when you are like a teenager and you want to drink alcohol for the first time? Was that like a drama for you? Um, I think it was more of a drama for my mother. Um, <laughs> not particularly. I mean, I'd heard things from diabetes educators and stuff about how alcohol would affect blood sugar levels. But even to this day, I've, I haven't noticed massive impacts on my blood sugar from like, wine is my go-to. Mm-hmm. Um, these days with a bit more beer and the carbohydrates in beer, that can cause um, cause a bit more of a spike that I have to kind of keep an eye on. Um, but I guess I was never a binge drinker, so I didn't have any kind of surprise hospitalizations that my mum had to be called in for or anything like mm-hmm. that um, as a result. So just for the listeners that might not know anything about type 1 diabetes you have a pump or are you injecting daily like or have you injected originally a different type of injection to what we normally talk about yes a different (laughs) one exactly yeah started off on injections two a day when i was first diagnosed and where did you put them uh either on top of my thigh or in my butt or i didn't really have enough belly fat to put them in my (laughs) stomach but a lot of people do put them there you can put them in your arm um so for me it was basically thighs and butt Um, And that was two a day to begin with. Then it went to three about a year later and shortly after four. But then within two years of being diagnosed, I was about 12, 13, I went on to an insulin pump. Mm -hmm. And so then that gets um, inserted um, just with a little spring-loaded firing mechanism once every three days. Um, And then you're just wearing that pump pretty much continuously, take it off to shower. Um, And then you you put in doses uh, for when you eat carbohydrates. Um, and then it also takes care of putting a little basil in over a 24-hour period. Okay. And you walk around with a little pack strapped to you. Can you tell us about that? The insulin pump pack, is that what you mean? Yeah. Well, just I've just noticed like some of my patients have a TENS machine in their TENS pocket. Machine. That's just for a pain relief. Um, no one else knows. They're very discreet. Um, but over the years, um, have, have those packs got more and more transportable for you and um, are they, you know, something that it that it that is easy to uh accompany you insulin pumps have made i think frustratingly slow progress over the last 20 years okay um by my standards anyway i'm a bit of a tech gig um so (laughs) frustratingly slow by my standards but they have made progress so um back in the day they were probably i don't know a little bit bigger by a few cubic centimeters they haven't gotten that much smaller um so 20 years ago people used to think i was carrying a pager around back then that was still a thing but nobody knows what pages are anymore so (laughs) um uh, but there, with the introduction of things like continuous glucose monitoring sensors, um, that's another little thing that I have to have injected every week. Um, but that now talks to my pump, and my pump does a certain amount of automatic adjustments based on what the sensor tells it. Um, so that means I can go longer without testing my blood sugar. Um, it's a little bit more forgiving if I forget to put in insulin for food, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of the size and carrying the pump around, that's been about the same like i sleep with it and um i've just become subconsciously aware of how to kind of unwrap myself from it in the middle of the night yeah so i'm assuming that at the beginning when you were first diagnosed at 10 your mum and you and your whoever else was your like full-time caregivers would have been given a lot of education about what to do then and what to expect in the future 
And did that ever involve sexual education and how diabetes affects that? Mm. The education at PMH uh, Hospital at the time was fantastic um, in terms of um, just how to manage diabetes ongoingly once you went home from the hospital. That that was absolutely fantastic. Um, I remember things like erectile dysfunction being mentioned on lists of things that were kind of in brochures at some point, but it was never discussed in detail at the time. And I guess I was 10 at the time, so mm. you know they weren't going to talk to me a lot about that. Um, but I always assumed that that's something that I didn't really have to worry about until I was like 50 plus at least. <laughs> but you know, then kind of 25 rolled around and all of a sudden it's like, mm, this is not like it once was. Um, yeah, so no, it wasn't. It wasn't really discussed in in much detail. It was on the list along with things like um, you know, kind of um, you know, issues with you know eyes, kidneys, liver, circulation issues, that kind of thing. Um, it was on the list, but it was always way down the track. And also, assumably that assuming that you had bad control over your diabetes, so high HbA1c, that kind of thing. My HbA1c hasn't always been amazing, but it hasn't been terrible either. Sorry, what's HbA1c? Glycosylated hemoglobin, correct me, Mel? Yes. Yeah, so given as like a, as a percentage which you can kind of correlate to an average blood sugar level over time. So if you measure someone's HbA1c when they're a diabetic, you're measuring what the average of their blood sugar level is over the three-month period leading oh, up to it. Okay. So you can actually tell whether or not they've maintained their blood sugar level well. So in the old days, someone would come in as a diabetic and they might just be really well behaved and you'd only eat that day and you'd ah, check it yep, and you'd yep, go, yep. oh, you've done really well. But yep. nowadays we check back three months. So you can't How does that do data that. roll in for three months? It just, you take one blood test and it's just an amazing invention. Oh, really? One blood test and that blood test tells you what the average of their... Um, blood sugar level has been over is that last much, three months. How much glucose is attached to the haemoglobin Yes, blood? that's right. Yeah. And that's over a three-month reading. And so because of that, you can go, yeah, this person's been managing their blood sugar level really well for the past three months. Oh. And so, yeah, then because it, you used to get in the old days, people who would come in and have gangrenous toe, but yeah. their blood sugar level when they were came perfect. in at the appointment were perfect and you were like, what's going on? But now you check that and you know they've been fibbing to you. Mm-hmm. So one more question then about that. What about when you were a teenager? Because you would have gone back for regular appointments. Even when you were a teenager, did anyone talk to you about sexuality? No, there was no, there was no, there was no mention of sex in, in any of that. It was just, um, it was just, you know, come in, do your HbA1c, have a look at your levels, kind of your record book. Do we need to adjust dosages? Blah blah blah. Um, I think I remember being given a CD-ROM at some point and there was like <laughs> CD-ROM. An, yeah, yeah, lol. Um, <laughs> that, that had, you know, um, I think it was called, you know, Finding the Balance or something suitably wanky like that. And it, it talked about various... <laughs> Pardon the pun. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there, was, there was one aspect, it was kind of talking about different aspects of your adult life and one of them was sex and I kind of clicked on that and there was this video of this kind of, you know, quote-unquote couple that were kind of... You know, one of them or both of them were apparently diabetic and, you know, they were saying, oh, and don't forget that sex is a kind of exercise, so don't forget to eat beforehand, otherwise you might go low. <laughs> that was like the only thing I remember it, about sex ed and diabetes. Right. So now when you were first starting out in your sex life, you were like, what, we've got to go to Macca's for a burger before I do it? Yeah, well, <laughs> I never ended up really having to follow through on that. I mean, uh, spoiler alert, if if you've got low blood sugar, it ain't working anyway, no matter, like, even if you don't have erectile dysfunction, low blood sugar, it just does not seem to want to play ball. Okay. Um, so there is an incentive to kind of, I guess, look out for that, doubly so yeah. beforehand. Um, but I guess my sex life pre-erectile dysfunction, 
it was like, okay, well, working fine, working fine. Oh, I'm low. Okay, one disappointment. 20 minutes later and we're good to go. So Just a few jelly beans. Yeah, mm. not, okay. not a big deal. Okay, so what started happening about 25? What what was so 25, on the radar there? I think the first time I remember something happening was, I think we had a lot of wine that night or something, and then in bed, hot and heavy, all going great, and all of a sudden it was just, oh, yeah. all of a sudden there's a lot more effort required here, and I was like, I've drunk too much or something, or maybe it's high blood sugar and that's impacting it as well. Um, so that was kind of the first instance, but then kind of happened more and more over time. Um, so was that only during sexual activity or were you noticing things like morning erections, um, morning glories not appearing as often as they once were? Do you remember that, subtle things like that? That did happen. It, I didn't notice it for quite a while though. I, I noticed the others. I noticed the more like in the moment stuff yep, happening sure. earlier. Yep, and then yep. someone mentioned it to me and I was like, oh, that's a good point actually. I don't think that is happening as much anymore. Okay. Mm. So six years on. What's what's happened in in that time in the last mm. few years? What, has anything changed, developed? Yeah, so I guess it continued to deteriorate over those six years. Um, the relationship I was in at the time, I was basically unable to talk about that with my partner. Not okay. not because of anything that she'd done or whatever. I just basically couldn't come to terms with having that conversation. Sure. Um, so that in the end resulted in. A couple of years later, that relationship ending. Um, so that was a shame. Um, <laughs> for the most part, learnt my lesson from from that. Um, but yeah, that was that was just a massive roadblock that I mental roadblock that I just could so not get through. So do you feel through. that the erectile dysfunction contributed to the relationship breakdown? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And do you think that was because you failed to communicate? Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, I my parents were those people that were saying, you know, it's okay for boys to cry. Like it was, you know, I could come to them with any question. Yeah. But um, coming to them with sex questions was a bit more awkward, so I didn't do it as much. But, but it, for someone, I guess, who would even consider myself to be relatively emotionally intelligent and could have difficult conversations, this was one that I just buried my head in the sand and did not come back up. And for. what about diabetic nurse educators? Mm. Was that a, an ongoing part of your medical team support? I had diabetes nurse educators up until about 1819 when I left the PMH system. Okay, what happened Princess then? Princess Margaret Hospital. After that, it was off to a private endocrinologist once a year um, and... That was kind of just the usual blood checks, like a series of bloods. and. Um, so you didn't ask them about the erectile problem? Or were you just, for the six years, you just kind of didn't didn't even talk to anyone about it? For about three years, I didn't talk oh, to anyone about it. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So um, eventually, eventually had a discussion with my, with my partner, um, then spoke to my GP about it, um, tried a few different meds. I think it was basically just Viagra the first time around. Mm-hmm. Um not the much cooler stuff that Mel introduced me to later. <laughs> um, so, yeah, GP. And then I think from there it was we, we were doing some counselling because we weren't really sure, like, was it a mental thing? Was it a physical, physical. thing? Mm. But terms, I, I think there was a mental component given the amount of crap that I had buried under there. Sure. But there was definitely a strong physical component to that that needed sorting. Um, and then the Peronis came up uh few years later that was like mm, i think i first noticed symptoms in the beginning of 2019 uh 
back to the GP. From there to urologist, I put that making that appointment off for a few months as well. From the urologist, I then uh, I just want to stop there. Why did you put the appointment off for a few months? It's something I actually had a patient this week who, when I went to actually look at the date he'd been referred, it was three and a half years ago. Oh. <laughs> it was a it, I couldn't believe that he yeah. had this. Um, oh man! It looked a little bit scrunched, mind you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, yeah, it, it fascinated me that he would wait three and a half Can years. I just ask a question: Did his penis look a little bit scrunched, or the paper referral look? The a bit paper scr- referral, oh, okay. Melissa. Glad you clarified that. Dear. So, yeah, um, I really want to understand your hesitancy mm. because that's mm. a part of our day every day, isn't it, Melissa? Mm, definitely. Yeah. I think, yeah, it, it defies logic. And I knew at the time that it defied logic, but it was just, okay, now I have to go and deal with this whole other thing and I have no idea what it is and and just like, the fear of the unknown was the hardest part, mm. I think. Um, and then you met Mel when you finally... Did succumb the courage. Yes. Did you meet me first or Joe first? You. So you okay. were the one that said, Mel's, uh, sorry, Joe's doing this new stuff that might work. I'll, I'll email her and see if, mm. if she'll take your case. Um, and I, I think it was once I started seeing you two that I – it started to normalise. Mm-hmm. I think especially between the two of you. And there was this whole kind of world of like penis stuff. <laughs> 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 Um, and at the, yeah, that's the point at which it started to normalise, and um, and I could I guess talk about it and think about it more clearly and openly and and that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, from from the urologist then to Mel and yeah, and from Mel. So to oh, that's right because you saw one of the urologists that I work with, didn't you? Mm. And then I saw you, yeah. and then what did I started you on some medication, and how did that go? What happened then? Yeah, so I think oh, I think we started on the Tadalafil mm-hmm. um, early on. Tadalafil is the Name for Cialis yep. now that it's um, exactly of patency. Yeah, I'd, I'd been on the Cialis before, and of course that was way expensive when it was the branded Cialis. Um, but I think we did a bit of uh, dose manipulation, which is we gave you the compounded hard. version. Yeah, yeah. I think we also talked about just continuous yes. dosages because the whole nighttime erections and the importance of those. Um, whereas previously it was well, if you think you're going to have sex tonight or this afternoon or whatever Performance it is. enhancing is how I like to put it. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and did you find, because I often find that men in particular, young men in particular are better off with the daily dosing because then it gives you your spontaneity, which you don't have when you've got to think, hey, I've got to take it an hour before. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the big difference also between Viagra and Cialis slash Tadalafil being that, you know, what Viagra is what, like takes 45 minutes to work, mm. uh, and then it's in your system for maybe six hours and it doesn't really mix that well with alcohol. Or so food. You, or <laughs> yeah. food, you've got to take it on an empty stomach. Yeah, whereas Tadalafil, it's like you're just kind of morning and night and um, you've got like, what, thirty up to 36 hours coverage. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yes, sp- spontaneity, that was, a, that was a big deal yeah. when that was possible. Yeah. yeah. And then when you started getting good erections, you noticed something in the shaft, which is why I sent you to Joe. So what happened then? Yeah, so it kind of started to like feel a little, I think it started off as a lump um, and then it was curving upwards slightly as when, when it was hard. Um, sorry, what was your question? So then I sent you off to Jo and mm. what did she do? Ah, so, um, well, dropped my Dax on a table <laughs> and she waved a magic wand over it for, for 10 minutes at a time. Um, so we started with, um, the magic one being the therapeutic ultrasound. Yes, so I just finished doing my trial, my random control trial, 
on uh, 46 men and we were able to show that in 70% of the cases with peronies, we were able to imp- improve um, the plaque size and also the curvature mm. and any deformity. So peronies is not necessarily just a curve. It, it could be any change in appearance uh, of the penis, mostly only or actually only seen when the penis is erect. So for some guys who don't have normal erections, it's actually difficult to determine exactly the extent of it until you do have something like a full Mm -hmm. Viagra. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, yes, we commenced the ultrasound therapy. But one thing about um, Pike's situation was that we had a Doppler scan done and that Doppler scan actually revealed that Pike had quite a lot of uh, calcified plaques and the ultrasound therapy has minimal benefit for that but it, I've actually found the ultrasound therapy really helpful when there's pain so so we started working on you when you had some pain and discomfort do you remember if the ultrasound therapy that we initially did was helpful for that I think I don't think I had a lot of pain but I don't have pain anymore so I think it was helpful. Or discomfort to, even. Yeah, yeah. To, yeah, to some effects, yeah. Um, so, yeah, unfortunately we weren't really able to fix much of the bend by that stage with the ultrasound because so much of it had calcified. Instead. That's correct, yeah. yeah. And that, that was the findings of my studies as well. So 70% of men um, with peronies did respond and they were the ones who had more fibrous plaques. Smaller calcifications did um, have some response a lot of the time, but there was a 30% group that didn't actually respond. And then that... Uh, led me to the opportunity to use a totally new treatment option, which was the focal shockwave therapy, extracorporeal shockwave therapy. And I was actually looking for guinea pigs because I was actually a little bit reluctant to even look at this machine because it had a $35,000 price tag (laughs) and it wasn't something that uh, as a lowly physiotherapist (laughs) was normally in my repertoire of purchases. Uh, But I was willing to give it a go based on the the company itself um, wanting me to trial it out with these um, patients who had um, more complex uh, curvatures and calcifications. And uh, you were one of my guinea pigs, Pike. So how did it feel when I said, "Mm, we're going to move from the magic wand to the penis prick machine, is it? (laughs) (laughs) Is that the new name for it? (laughs) Uh, Some of my patients have coined it that one. (laughs) That was, that was a, I was like, okay. I mean, because I could hear it from other patients actually sometimes in the waiting room. It's just like, (laughs) yeah, it's going to be a loud tack tack. From the room, I was like, that sounds a bit ominous, but you know, all right, give it a go. Um, But I mean, it it was, it was by no means, uh, it was by no means unbearable or anything like, you know, you and I, I lie there and we have a chat for 10 minutes about the weather or the economy or COVID or whatever's happening at the time. Yeah, we do. Um, So like if you can maintain a conversation, it can't be that bad. Um, I was looking at the um, Doppler report, actually, that compared the two Doppler reports from before and after that. And I think we did get uh, the first measurement was like 4.2 mil. That's correct. Calcification down to 3.9. So and that was back in July. So it'd be interesting after this next round, what? Yeah, we, we, we so we're aiming to reduce the size of the plaque and therefore hopefully bombard the tissue to the point where we're getting improved um, cavernosal blood flow to that area, which hopefully will um, reinflate the cylinders that have been a bit compromised. So the, the research on that is still evolving. Initially, there was something called radial shockwave, um, which um, was technology called first-generation technology, which was developed in around the year 2010 and it didn't show remarkable results which is also why I was a little bit hesitant to purchase the machine but this new technology is 
what's called focused shockwave and it's having far better results. So that's what we've been doing. And yes, um, six months on, um, give or take a little bit of COVID break, um, we are due to uh, follow up with another scan. So when we can actually measure what they call biological change, that's really unusual in peronies. You don't normally see the condition reversing or getting better over time. So the plaques is one thing. What about symptoms? What have you noticed mm, in terms yeah, of function, blood flow? Like? Uh, one of those questions at a time. What does the curve look like? It bends up slightly. Um, Less I'll, or more since Joe's done her magic wand. I haven't noticed a huge change in it. So maybe slightly less, but I, I don't think it's been a, a huge change. Um, we're still working on that. Mm-hmm. Um, you said, what were you asking, Joe? Blood flow or? Blood flow, just the general erectile function. My erections are still a little bit um, temperamental. Um, so I kind of have, I think comes down to a, a heap of factors um change i haven't noticed a massive change um in in erectile function and it's really interesting to report this because this is all very new technology mm. and uh when i asked you to be a guinea pig it was because i really wasn't sure uh but I did, in the end, because of COVID, have the opportunity to experiment with that machine for not only six weeks as initially planned, but about eight months. And definitely my patients who've had um, the non-calcified uh, Peronis and then even post-prostatectomy erectile dysfunction, that has been uh, quite uh, a significant and, and much, mm. much more impactful sort of um, response than I initially in, uh, expected. And so I did end up purchasing the machine and I do now offer it as treatment only because of the clinical case studies that I was um, doing were, were coming up more Over positive. positive yeah. 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 And certainly with Peronis, we know that it can or usually does progress with time. And one of the main, main goals is to stop it from getting worse, stop it in its tracks. Yeah. Because yeah. it's psychologically just, you know, pretty despairing to um, overtime have a condition that gets worse and worse, let alone it be your penis and your manhood. Yeah. Any comments there? Yeah, a couple. So I think um, speaking of stopping it in its tracks, so I think one that's back to the kind of uh, don't put it off, go talk to someone about it and get under treatment ASAP to state the bleeding obvious. Because um, I think when you guys interviewed, was it Prince? Yes. Prince, yes, young Prince, yes. Um, that was within what, like four, six weeks or something of him first noticing it and then you guys had sorted it out in another six weeks and it was we back did, to normal. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, if I'd had that intelligence, maybe <laughs> maybe it would be straight again. Um, but, I mean, then the worst case scenario, I was at the urologist a few months ago and, and he was like, well, this other patient of mine showed me a photo and, like, poor guy had, like, a 90-degree bend, which was just completely, like, he just couldn't use it. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that would be my comments on that. And you kind of are lucky because you got the upward bend, mm-hmm. so that's probably quite good for any female yes. friends that you have. Well, we're talking explicit details. Feedback I've received is that, like, actually, though, that's more helpful, it, like, from behind, the other, yes. the opposite. Uh, oh, you don't. Okay, this is interesting. I expected <laughs> up to be better missionary, but it turned out to be the yeah. other way around. Yeah. So, 
Can we have a little it would just anatomy hit, lesson? It would hit the G-spot better that way. So if you've ever noticed that most dildos, if you buy them, you probably mm. haven't bought too many, <laughs> but if you did notice them, they have that upward curve and it's just easier in a doggy style position for like as the bend kind of goes backwards like that, it hits the G-spot and then the downward bend of it then would, sorry, the upward bend of it would hit the G-spot. I'm going to embarrass myself here on international podcasts. I thought the G spot was if you're lying on your back, yeah. it's towards the ceiling. Yep, that's right. right. So no, you're, you're right. About the head of the penis hitting that. No, or? the bend. So when you're so when you're going the, in okay, from the doggy bend style, makes sense. the I bend. No, so the bend is hitting it, gotcha. and then the head is hitting the back wall of the rectum, and. Yep. Um, the rectum is actually quite an arousing, full mm. of sensation. So you're yep. getting, as a woman, a double whammy. You're getting your G-spot hit <laughs> and your rectum stimulated at the same time. <laughs> so that's like the perfect bend. But if you had as long the, as it doesn't get worse. Yeah. But if you had the same bend on like a left or a right, that's uncomfortable. Yeah. So if you're going to have a bend. Not only uncomfortable, often impossible for um, exactly. penetration. Yeah. And that's when we, we do need to definitely look into corrective surgeries um, with the urologists as an option because, mm. you know, that that can completely break down, mm. you know, relationships. Exactly. So that brings us to the next question that I had was you did – sort of talk about this a bit earlier how lack of communication with your last partner mm. kind of ended that relationship it made it really difficult mm. but now that you've come to talk to joe and i about this and you're becoming more open how have you gone forward with future relationships has that made things easier yes absolutely absolutely um so Basically, I mean, my most recent relationship got it out on the table, like, the first night we were together. Got what out on the table? (laughs) 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 Got you back, got you back for my little (laughs) referral coming Um, earlier. Yeah, it was was the first night together getting hot and heavy and I was like, can we talk about sex? And, um, yeah, I mean, luckily um, she's a nurse, so this kind of stuff... it wasn't, you know, wasn't a revelation or a massive surprise to her. I've had those conversations before. Um, uh, but the, I, I think the most amazing thing for me about that conversation happening that night and the, although I was shitting myself in the lead up to saying those words, mm. can, can, can we talk about sex? Blah, yeah. Can we talk about this? Blah, blah, blah. Uh, the, the position of vulnerability that I put myself into there was immediately then reciprocated from her on something else. And so we've now had this upward spiral of good communication, vulnerability, support, et cetera, et cetera, and it's just kept going up Mm. and up and up. So I can't really think of a better case study of, like, just fucking talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. He whispered then, but he said, just effing talk about it, and if you couldn't (laughs) hear him. (laughs) So that's great. Now, so what... Is there anything you wish in your past? Like, do you wish as a young man someone talked to you about this that a bit more explicitly? Or what advice would you have for any other health professionals listening that might have a young diagnosed diabetic patient? When would be the best time and what sort of age do you think someone should have maybe raised this issue with you? Well, I mean, I was sexually active from like 16. So, I don't know, anywhere kind of 15 up, I guess, would have probably been helpful um what would i have wanted to know i think you know without trying to freak people out at that age i think 
kind of having it more on there is this is something that can happen. It's not necessarily going to happen to you. This is something that can happen. If it does, if you notice these kinds of things, here's who you should go talk to about it and why. Because for me, I think it's always the here's the worse if you don't and here's why you should go yeah. talk because otherwise yeah. this might happen. Um, yeah, that, that would be what I wish I guess I had. It's had. really interesting actually, Pike, because I've just had a quick look at um, the Mayo Clinic because I often go there just for, you know, if I want to try and rather than just Dr. Google generally, I'll just go Mayo Clinic and see what they have to say. And in the list of complications from diabetes type 1, it basically lists heart and blood vessel disease as the top, mm-hmm. then followed by nerve damage, mm-hmm. neuropathy, uh, kidney damage, eye damage, etc. But I'll read out what it actually says. Heart and blood vessel disease. Diabetes dramatically increases your risk of various cardiovascular problems, including coronary artery disease with chest pain or angina, heart attack, stroke, and narrowing of the arteries, and high blood pressure. Full stop. So not one (laughs) comment (laughs) even there. About a poor penis that needs some blood flow. Mm. So looking at uh, research papers and publications, there's actually a lot of evidence that suggests there's a very strong link between diabetes and erectile dysfunction. And then... Anywhere, I was just reading earlier, up to 20% of uh, people with diabetes type 1 having Peyronie's disease. So it's a one 20%. in five. Okay. Yeah. One in five. And when we talk about these percentages, it's often um, lower because when we we have these somewhat taboo, embarrassing topics, we're not actually seeing anywhere near the number of cases that are actually going yeah, on in the real yeah. world. Yeah. So it's just remarkable that it was never part of the education and even on uh, what I, you know, respectfully always go to for just general information to share mm. with patients that um, it's not raised either, mm. just in the general information. Because I think when, like Pike said, that he felt embarrassed talking to someone like a health professional about it to bring mm. it up, I actually think there's a lot of health professionals who are embarrassed to bring it up too. Oh. Interesting. Yeah, bring it up being the operative word. <laughs> but, you know, I think they are. Like I think it's it's an awkward conversation, you know, because I've had people say, oh, I asked my GP or my urologist or whatever about my sex sexual function and they've just handed me your card. They didn't want to talk about it. They looked awkward. You know, so I think it's a, it's, it is a difficult conversation for a lot of people. And to my GP's credit, he was great about it when I actually went and talked to him about mm. it. But, I mean, I think, that, again, kind of finding the experts. So, you know, I find the same thing with, with diabetes. Obviously, GPs have to be across a plethora of stuff. Absolutely. Um, and if I start talking about diabetes, I'll ask some questions and I'm like, I don't think you're actually asking the right question there, never mind the answer that I give yeah, you. you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and kind of the same thing here. So he wasn't aware of kind of the generic versions of Tadalafil available at the time. Um, you're educating your... Your doctor and all these things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it wasn't it's until two way street. Get to kind of sexual health expert like Mel um, that we got into more some specifics of that, and um, and then she referred to that the new stuff you were doing. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah, it was kind of follow the breadcrumbs. Mm. So, so in this space altogether, I really just think it's uh, wonderful to have this opportunity to talk to Pike because you know from ten years of age, we had to deal with a chronic disease. And at 31, you seem to be mastering it and uh, so willing to share your own experiences. And, yeah, for that, we really appreciate it. 
Yeah. Thank you so much, Pike. And I was just about to say your real name then. That was a birthday. <laughs> really appreciate you coming in. It was fantastic. And thanks for sharing all your knowledge. Yeah, thank you. Good to get that message out there so I can help. Along for that life of warm afternoons, campfires and Hi, this is Dr. Joy. Thank you so much for listening to our program today. And we're pleased to let you know that we will be having weekly podcasts, not fortnightly, as originally proposed. And this is because of the popularity of our podcast. We're getting so many emails, so many questions, and so much feedback. And Melissa and I greatly appreciate it. What we'd really love you to do is share our podcast with anyone you think might benefit, including any man in your life. Simply download off Spotify or subscribe to thepenisproject.org and then you'll get a weekly email of our newest releases. Also feel free to send us a review and this will greatly help in our ongoing ability to bring you new and fresh information as that's the way we build what comes next. We also have show notes attached and this gives a bit of a background into any additional resources or explanations of what we're talking about. Finally, it's my great pleasure to let you know that PROST, the exercise program which sponsors our podcast, is now available on a USB resource for any man diagnosed with prostate cancer, an exercise program. Clinicians can buy these as well as the everyday bloke. So feel free to check out prost.com.au. Meanwhile, let's keep the conversation going. Try to deny the going down of the sun. We're just having too much fun.